0: You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor.
1: I say maybe Maybe I'm
2: in love with you I say maybe Yeah.
0: Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T Hetzel and today. So happy to have in the studio Taya Miles. Taya, welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you, T. <laughs> Thanks for picking our the songs to here with um, leading off with Aretha. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Lots of fun. It is. We both sort of perked up right away, yeah, even did. though it's been somewhat of a long day. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe listeners out there can uh, relate to that, like the the long afternoons of winter. And and we were also talking right before we came on the air that this conversation has been a long time in the making. We've been emailing. I've emailed you originally in 2016 for your mm-hmm. novel, The Cherokee <laughs> Rose, right? <laughs> So it's finally happened. Yeah, it's happening. (laughs) And today we'll talk about your latest book, just uh, out last year with the new press, The Dawn of Detroit, A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits. You can probably tell everybody just from the title alone, the lyrical quality present in this book, A History, A Story. A new, a new history, a rethinking of it. But before we get started, Taya, what have you gotten yourself into?
3: I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs>
0: um, but first, <laughs> your bio. Taya Miles was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, where most of her family still resides. She lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, on a tree-lined street with her husband, the academic psychologist Joseph Gon, delightful twin daughters, and a spirited son. She is an avid reader of feminist mysteries, love that part, a passionate fan of old houses, and a loyal patron of Grater's Ice Cream Mm -hmm. in Cincinnati, as well as Dairy Queen just about anywhere. Her favorite color is purple, shading into blue. (laughs) Wonderful specificity. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Taya Miles is the recipient of a 2011 MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and is a professor at the University of Michigan in the Departments of American Culture, Afro-American and African Studies, History and Women's Studies, and in the Native American Studies program. Thanks so much for being coming down to the studio today.
3: Oh, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here, especially when it's freezing cold outside. Like, yeah, It's come cozy on. down here. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> cozy basement.
0: Yeah. So the Dawn of Detroit, this this has been a project that's been in the works since 2011. Is, is that at, right, at Taya? At least.
3: I think or it has at least... a prehistory bit before that, too. Well, could you tell us some of this, the origin story of the Dawn of Detroit? I could, but just (laughs) cut me off if I go on too long about this. (laughs) Because this project actually started in a classroom experience. I was teaching an upper-level undergraduate seminar in Afro-American and African Studies. And we were looking at representations of slavery in the past and in the present. And so as a part of that class, we got a chance to take a tour of underground railroad sites. And was that through the the Black Scroll Network? Tour um, that that's was not was on the the Black, site? the Black Scroll Network is um, another really amazing local educational kind of tour company, and they're based in Detroit. But this one that we went on was actually based in uh, our area, closer to us, in Ipsy and in Ann Arbor. And they are the African American Cultural and Historical Museum of Washtenaw County. And they actually, um, at the time, didn't have a physical site. But I understand that they now are uh, renovating a home that they've moved. It's a historic home, but they've moved it to Pontiac Trail, which is the perfect place for them to be because it's such a key spot in In the Underground Railroad locally. How so, Taya? Uh, Well, there are a couple of houses on Pontiac Trail that were connected to um, a businessman and uh, a newspaper printer who were involved in abolitionism. And so now this museum will will be in that it will be area. I mean uh, physically um, situated so there were always right. people who were actively involved and who were organizing tours but now they'll have um, you know a, a physical home so the person who took us on the tour is Deborah Meadows and she's an amazing woman who knows all about local history and as I understood it, she actually was sort of inheriting the tour from an older woman uh, who was kind of her mentor and she took us around to various spots in Ypsilanti and um, asked her to include, you know, places close to home. So we also did a, a swing, you know, down the Pontiac Trail, and it was in Ipsy that this product actually first began for me. As I said, I mean, it's sort of a long story and a winding road, t but Great. Um, <laughs> I'll love it. You like winding roads? <laughs> I do. So the Ypsilanti Historical Museum has a little um, exhibit space that's dedicated to the Underground Railroad. As I understand it, that space actually um, became more developed over time as Deborah Meadows and her peers were doing this tour. So in some ways, the museum was responding to the community need to have this aspect of the local history interpreted. So we were there at the Ipsy Historical Museum, and um, we were looking at descriptions and photographs on the wall, behind the glass. And... I saw the story of a woman named Laura Smith Haviland, and I had actually never heard of her, and I was stunned when I started to learn just some of the basic features of her life in the museum that day, that she was um, a white woman who had lost a number of family members in an epidemic, and when that happened, she um, really devoted her life. She, She gave her life over to fighting against slavery and for her this was a religious commitment she felt that God was leading her on this path and, and what she did, year was this around would you around say? the 1830s 80s. 40s okay. and she um, left her uh, living children she had lost a child, and she left her living children in Adrian, Michigan. She traveled south, actually, to my hometown. She traveled to Cincinnati, Ohio, and um, she taught people who were escaping from slavery there. And she actually crossed the Ohio River. She went into Kentucky, which, um, of course, many black women had done this kind of thing, had physically helped other enslaved people to escape. But um, this was far from common for white women, it, you know, in fact, it was incredibly rare and only one other white woman had done it and she had done it uh, with a white man who had developed the plan. So Laura Smith Haviland is the only white woman uh, for whom there's evidence that she um, developed her own plan for trying to help an enslaved person escape. She was trying to reunite a couple. And so she crossed the Ohio river and she did this um, really to um, the great shock and horror of white male abolitionists like Levi Coffin, who thought that she was actually being too activist and, um, and not being feminine enough in this kind of action. And some words still ring true and some, <laughs> they, they do, they do. I mean, um, she was supposed to be supporting uh, the abolitionist movement, but kind of, you know, quietly.
0: <laughs> right. And I don't mean true. I mean, I, they don't I, sound like so, oh, that's so, I haven't heard that in a while. Right. right.
3: <laughs> right. It sounds like language that c- could be used today and is often used today to kind of define what women can or should do. So she also, um, I mean, she, there are so many stories connected to her. I could go on and on. I mean, she um, she helped enslaved people move through Detroit, on their way to freedom, she lived in Canada for a time, teaching school in a community of Black people who had escaped. Um, she was incredibly intrepid, and um, she had a reputation in Adrian, Michigan, for, um, for standing out in a way that many of her neighbors thought um, was not good. It's that unseemly. Is, it was unseemly. Thank you for that word. Yes, it was unseemly because from some of their points of view... Um, and I saw this in the records in Ipsy in the ipsy historical museum they have they have uh, archival material there in um, some people 's uh, points of view. Um, the fact that she had black people in her home was unacceptable and i 'm not going to you know quote their language and how they describe black people you know in in this description, but um, she was really pushing the boundaries of expectation even in what was a pretty liberal community of southeastern Michigan. So believe it or not, this is where the story started for me on this Detroit project, because I didn't know about Laura Smith Haviland. I was fascinated by um, her willfulness and by her courage and by the way in which she was for not just emancipation, but also for total equality. She was such a fiery writer. She, um, she wrote, all kinds of critical uh, dispatches about the U.S. government and thought that it was corrupt. She wrote an autobiography and um, she described slaveholders in ways that were um, uh, very colorfully critical and negative, just exposing them for um, the evil people that she really felt they were. And again, she sees herself as being guided by God. She was a very um, devout Quaker and then she actually converted to Methodism because for her Methodism was even more radical.
0: <laughs> so when Quakerism is that that's exactly right.
3: <laughs> so um I started off thinking that I might do a project about her and I did research on her for um maybe about a year and I published a couple of articles about her. And um while I still find her to be a mesmerizing figure who um, while not perfect, please don't get me wrong, she had her issues. We won't get into all of them now. Um, she was a woman of her time. But um, while not perfect, you know, she did incredible things. I still see her in that way. But as I read her memoir more than once and started to read it more closely, I noticed that she kept gesturing to the idea that Michigan was this wonderful place of freedom the idea that she was so glad that her family had moved to Michigan, they had moved from New York, um, and that um, Michigan residents were always for Black equality. So she was really um, highlighting this idea that Michigan was a special place that um, would never abide having slaveholders or slavery you know, um, in the land. And that made me curious. But then she was also writing about like, like that how, that's she was a disconnect, she, there is there is disconnect that's right a disconnect in her own time and disconnect not too long before the time period that she was active because in her own time there were people in michigan who were willing to kind of look the other way were willing to criticize her for trying to um, assist enslaved people as they fought for their own freedom and um of course there were Southerners who were coming into Michigan regularly trying to recapture enslaved people who had run away in her own time. And in addition to that, in her during her lifetime and just before the period when the railroad was really active, um slavery was actually practiced in Michigan. And I have a hard time believing that she wasn't aware of that because she was an incredibly sharp woman. <laughs> so I think that she actually made a choice about how to represent Michigan and that she was very attached to the idea of Michigan being a place of freedom mm-hmm. and that in some ways, I mean, she, maybe she was trying to even um, bring more people over to the cause by emphasizing that that quality and characteristic um, of the territory and of the state. But there was much more to it and that's what led me finally <laughs> to um, start trying to look at the context, especially the legal context, that seemed to be floating behind what it was that she was claiming for Michigan, and so I went back to the Northwest Ordinance, um, sort of the um, the constitutional um, legal document that organized what is now the state of Michigan and other Midwestern states, the Northwest, the North. Yes. That organized the Northwest territory. Let, let's take a short break. And oh, when oh, we
0: come back. Okay. We'll start there. Okay. Today on the program, Taya miles is here. Her book, the dawn of Detroit, a chronicle of slavery and freedom in the city of the straits. I'm T Hetzel. We've got Stephanie behind the glass and I'd like to thank Jessica, Yu, um, the publicist publicist at new press for sending the book. We'll be back.
1: It's not easy to say this or anything, with my entrails dangled between paradise and fear. I am ashamed. I never had the words to carry a friend from her death to the stars correctly. Were-
0: Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got living writers. I'm T Hetzel. Today on the program, Taya Miles is here. Her latest book, out with the new press, The Dawn of Detroit, A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits. Um, Thanks for choosing this song today by Joy Harjo, Mm -hmm. um, friend of the show. (laughs) And I can see that this is also a
3: meaningful song to you. Um, How so, Taya? Well, I'm a great admirer of Joy Harjo's work. I have loved her work ever since I was introduced to it, I think when I was in college. She's a Muskogee Creek poet and musician and memoirist. And um, the ideas that are encompassed in the poems that she's actually singing in the CD, Joy Harjo and Poetic Justice, really have inspired a lot of what I do in my writing. Meaning <laughs> that <laughs> you all couldn't see tea, but she... <laughs> Her face was encouraging me to explain <laughs> what I meant. <laughs> Meaning that I think that research, imagination, and writing can help us to, um, on a level that's beyond the material, address some of the wrongs of the past.
0: does that, that why you became a public historian for your life's
3: and writer? I think so. Although it would take me... Um, it would take me some time to to really try to understand when I arrived at that recognition. But um, when I was a little girl, I experienced history through my grandmother. So I'm one of these people, there are many of us, especially black women, many of us, native women too, many of us who um, grew up hearing stories being told. And my grandmother was an incredible storyteller. Um, so smart and so funny with perfect timing that I did not inherit and her uh, stories <laughs> her, her stories were um, really all about the South. She was from Mississippi and what life was like in the South, um, the experience of her family having their land seized from them by white men in the community, the experience of coming north to Cincinnati to during the great migration mm-hmm. to try to in the in the 40s to try to make a new life and when i heard her stories i didn't think about oral history or history i just thought about the sense of connection that i felt hearing her not only to her and to women in our family and to our forebears and to a broader african american and black experience Um, but also a connection to to a place that I had never even visited. So it was, the stories that she gave me really were about um, the broadening and the deepening of one's identity through um, stories of the past. But I didn't know that at the time. Now I I think that I see that and it's what I, I hope to do with my work it's almost as if by hearing these stories
0: from someone you love and trusted and who was a damn good storyteller, it also, it wake like maybe oh, oh, like awakens things that are in our DNA. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there can be stored memory <laughs> now. Welcome to the new age. Part. <laughs> Let me no, but, um, I, I don't mean to go too far off the deep end there, but, um, this idea of like the, like what we can know in our cellular makeup as well. Um, I'm not sure that we could understand it, but I just wonder if like you can, can you can kind of sometimes recognize or you have a, it's like one of those things where you hear it and then you feel like you've known it, even if it's you're hearing it for
3: the first time. Well, I can tell you this. I don't mind being in the deep end, by the way. (laughs) I don't know. I I don't know what I can say about cellular, cellular knowledge, but, but I can say this, that, um, The ways that my grandmother conveyed aspects of her experience were um, so well-crafted and so beautiful and so repetitive in a sense. Like a song? Like the um, return of the lyric? Well, absolutely a return. So um, if it ever felt like I wasn't hearing things, that I was hearing things that I'd heard before, it's because I had heard them before, because she would tell them over and over and over again... Um, in different contexts because I think that she wanted them to actually convey um, understandings and lessons about life. And new connections maybe mm-hmm. to these yeah. lessons about life. Right, right. Or... At different phases, uh, maybe in her life or in my life. Mm-hmm. And
0: did she, um, did she live to see you
3: become a storyteller as well? Almost. Oh she she lived to see my dissertation be completed, and um, my mother bound a copy for her, which I'm so glad that she did, um, because she died before my first book came out. But she had the manuscript. She, she had, she the, had manuscript. the book. Uh, yeah, of, she did of your thesis. She did.
0: Okay. We were talking about hmm. Well, because you mentioned your mom, Mm -hmm. I I wanted to say that, um, during trying to learn a little bit more about you, Taya, um, I was struck by the fact that at some point someone asked you during a question and answer session about how they could see how emotional talking about the material, um, that we're, we're actually talking about today in the book, the Dawn of Detroit, Mm um, how emotional it is and how, I mean, and I can now imagine you as a a researcher, a historian, and a human being out there with like the different records, the artifacts, these pieces that you're finding, and then you bringing your powerful imagination and your knowledge to bear also on making this new story. Um, uh, not new story, but exploring the history that's real mm-hmm. and so that we can, um, can try to understand that what we thought history was isn't necessarily the case mm-hmm. um, and how hard it was on you. And you said back in your answer that your mother told you that um, the material chooses you. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Like, is that sort of when you were maybe even having second thoughts about like how hard this work is, and mm-hmm. this material.
3: This was a long time ago when she said that to me. It was actually when I was doing dissertation research, um, so many years ago now. And um, I was at the Newberry Library in Chicago and had, had left um, the reading room to make a phone call to my mom about something that I had found, which is not uncommon <laughs> that I do that. And I was really upset about what I had found. Um, At this time, I was looking closely at the topic of slavery in the Cherokee Nation, and um, I had been under the impression through my growing up years that Native American space was always kind of a safe haven for African Americans. And, of course, the story is much more complicated than that on both sides. So I was... um, surprised and saddened when I started to learn about the details of how some Cherokee slaveholders t- treated um, enslaved black people. And so I called my mom and told her about this, and uh, that's when she told me that I didn't choose this material on this topic, that it chose me. Because I, I was asking her, why am I doing this? I mean, if you if you could see me at home or hang out with me, T, maybe we will sometime, I mean, you would you would know that I cannot handle material. <clears throat> excuse me. That is um, very violent, very graphic. Uh, that includes the humiliation of human beings. I actually I can't take it, and so I um, I screen my media intake very carefully. Um, try to protect my uh, emotions around that in my daily life because I know that I'm sensitive. So the fact that I study slavery is actually really, um, um, it's hard for me to fathom. And so the only way that I can understand it is that it is about recovery and it's about recognition. It's about um, standing as a witness, to the wrongdoing perpetrated against against human beings, against people's souls and their their loving bonds with one another, and so it sort of um, it feels like a duty or, or something um, that's really against my um, <laughs> maybe my personal inclinations in a sense. And you're
0: able to do it though. Mm-hmm. Because this is what you're making your life's work. And seems so <laughs> I, I I'm struck by the generosity of so this is so this this makes sense to me what you're saying. Um because reading The Dawn of Detroit, um, even hearing you speak about certain examples here today, um with laura smith haviland even like you give the person a generous reading like Mm -hmm. they may have been thinking this there or this you know there's Mm -hmm. always this generosity of an empathy and thinking maybe around what the person is not just this one single slice of what the person shows Mm -hmm. or so um i try and you do, you do. And this, you. this seems so valuable in your work as well with this looking into history.
3: Well, one of the things that I want to do or hope to do with my research and um, my writing is to enable people to see one another across various kinds of divides that we experience in society today. And to do that, I had to at least make my best effort at reconstructing a whole full human um, representations of all the people involved. And it seems like in this present moment, even mm-hmm.
0: being able to see each other across divides, even a skill that we more of us need to develop, right? And patience with others somehow, but maybe it's not patience. That sounds like the wrong thing, but maybe empathy, but then also being willing to witness what's difficult, but knowing that we have to keep trying as a community to be
3: more human. The good parts of being human. I think we have no choice but to keep trying I mean, what are the alternatives oh my goodness well post election that is
0: pretty clear i think on my, yes. my
3: small yes. part of the world but i think i mean empathy is um an important skill and value and i think that we should be working toward um a sophisticated form of empathy and at the same time i i think that um understanding the motivations of other people is is just as important, understanding their investments and the stakes in certain kinds of um, behaviors for them is part of what lays the groundwork for uh, bridging.
0: Let's take a short break and then we'll be back. Today on the program, Taya Miles is here, the dawn of Detroit, a chronicle of slavery and freedom in the city of the Straits. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers, and we'll be back.
1: And it's hard oh, to think of a troubles That worry my mind
0: Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm so glad you did. Taya Miles is here, the dawn of Detroit, a chronicle of slavery and freedom in the city of the Straits out with the new press. Um, so, uh, so we've been talking about a lot of ideas so far. Um, to my great um, I love talking about ideas thank you so much for coming today of course uh, thank um, you again uh, um, but we've got more ahead Um, so would you mind reading something from the dawn of Detroit so listeners get a sense of the
3: prose we can hear a bit of it yes I would be happy to and um, what I'm going to read is from the beginning of the book and I chose it because We had the launch of the book at Source Booksellers in Detroit. C-SPAN was there. C-SPAN was there, and um, during the Q and A, a woman who had come to hear about the book and learn about the topic actually repeated some of this page to me. What was that like? Hearing that it was actually you quoted to you. It was kind of magical. It was kind of wonderful. I mean, um, it takes such a long time for a book to come together, the research, the writing and, um, the actual, um, editing, revising and publication process that sometimes the words feel distant, you know? Um, and so hearing this, this woman, you know, in that room, it was a very intimate space, really wonderful, great books. So everybody should go, go to source and buy a book. Um, not my book, but just buy a book there, buy a book. Or, or the Dawn of Detroit, <laughs> Fair games. Um, when she said it, it just made, it made the words come alive for me again. And so I'm going to, to read from the page that she chose. Detroit is a city of ash, the charred remains of a burning. For centuries, the fire has raged, consuming lives, igniting passions, churning up the land and animals, swallowing humans whole. The burn that Detroiters feel that the nation uncomfortably intuits as it looks upon the beleaguered city as a symbol of progress and of defeat, traces back through distant time to the global desire to make lands into resources, the drive to turn people into things, the quest for imperial dominance, and the tolerance for ill-gotten gain. We attach a series of words, coded and clean, to the residue left behind by that fire. Racial tension, white flight, industrial decline, financial collapse, political corruption, economic development, even gentrification and renaissance. But the challenges faced by the residents of this city, and increasingly by all residents of our industrial urban places, are not neat or new. Deep histories flow beneath present inequalities, silent as underground freshwater streams. The racial and class divisions that set groups against one another are old aquatic creatures. We sometimes sense this. We sometimes feel the nearness of history, the imprint of people acting and events unfolding in the past. Beneath the popular culture chatter that calls Detroit a ruin, grotesquely grotesquely suggesting some natural process of decay at work, we can dip our fingers into the water and touch the outlines of an alternate historical dimension. In this dimension, the firestorm that engulfed Detroit was not the result of inevitable decline brought on by invisible market shifts akin to the force of gravity. In this dimension, Detroit is not the scene of natural disaster, but rather the scene of a crime. Thanks, Taya. Sure. So,
0: when you you wrote this part, what part of the process were you? in because we were saying you started even before 2011 Mm -hmm. and with the research and the and the writing um because this even if we take out like the the notes section Mm -hmm. this this is a hefty tome Mm -hmm.
3: i wrote this at the end of the writing process so the way that i i tend to um to draft my manuscripts is i work from the beginning to the end. I start with an introduction, I go through my chapters, I write my conclusion, my epilogue, and, and so on. And then I rewrite the introduction, because it takes me that whole process to know what the book is really about. So um, what I read just now is from the introduction. And even though I, I wrote it first many years ago, I wrote it again, just a few years ago. So when you say
0: that, I wrote it again, what are what are the... Changes in it because when you wrote it the first time, it what did it feel like? It was more like like a manifesto. What you what you were envisioning this book was going to be, and then
3: when you finished writing the book, well, I don't know. What... Well, I'm thinking as you ask the question, I'm trying to think about the answer of what changed. Um, the two things that that come to mind are one thing that changed is the introduction was more historical in the first go around. I was really setting the scene in the past in the 1700s. And this is and so not that. It's not because one of the things that, um, I always knew in the back of my head, but that became more and more clear to me and more and more powerful for me as I worked on the writing, um, is that there is a strong echo of, um, these past circumstances and power dynamics and social conflicts in present-day Detroit. And so for me, it was almost as much about the present as it is about the past, and I wanted to try to convey that in the introduction. So uh, that's that's one change. Another change is that uh, the difference between the first go-around and this uh, rewrite is that when I was doing the early research on the book, it was the period of the Detroit bankruptcy and all the negative press. And um, there were various journalistic histories being published about the city of Detroit that were, you know, kind of exposés. And there was an impression, I think a generally held impression, um, in the popular imagination that Detroit was a place that was dead, that it was a dead zone, um, and that we were now uh, in the phase of just conducting an autopsy. Yeah. Charlie Leduff's book actually Detroit an autopsy, right? I wasn't going to say it, but you said it for me. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so, um, there was, um, really a somber mood, um, for, for people who may have cared, um, maybe it was a mood of mourning for others. It was, I think a mood of, um uh, watching a disaster unfolding, you know, from a distance. So, so again, was,
0: don't be too generous there, Taya too, because I think it was then people w- wanted to like ruin porn became well, a phrase. That's not, yes. It was like what like right. looking at the ruin, people traveling that's right. to look at the city as if it was like an, an, an Epcot instead right. of a living organism. That's right. Like a, that's right. Like
3: mm mm-hmm. I mean I think that that there was, in some ways, um, what we might see as a corrupt um, interest in 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 pain and in devastation, but that was early on, but over the last few years, as we know, Detroit has been undergoing this this renaissance, right all kinds of money pouring in from various quarters, a lot of new capital coming in, new businesses. Um, new residents, and there's a whole new narrative that is uh, being attached to this change. And so um, what I tried to reflect in the introduction also was um, a sense of both those aspects. Right. And
0: with that, that that image of the underground aquifer like mm-hmm. the the underground stream mm-hmm. there connecting i guess also to the underground railroad mm-hmm. in is, in in some ways mm-hmm. but like that this this history remembers but also that it's it's a constant like we like we i don't know we're still we i think part of your work is like we are living history like that's right. why you're a public historian it's right. not about looking at the stories of the past just looking
3: backwards. Right. I mean, um, there's a map at the beginning of the book. It's a wonderful map that was just recently um, kind of rediscovered by the Clements Library here on campus. And it shows an, um, an old waterway that actually used to be an important part of the topography in Detroit, which is now covered over. And so part of that reference to the underground streams was about what the natural environment of Detroit used to be like, I mean, there, there there, was more than just the Detroit River, which is magnificent in and of itself, but there were all kinds of rivulets and waterways in the city that are now covered over and that people don't see. So the water is still there and the history is also still here with us.
0: And we need people who care enough also to piece it together, to find it like you've been doing in these past years
3: and put it together? Well, there are many, many people who have been doing that and um, have been dedicated to it in Detroit and in southeastern Michigan who have been um, doing things like organizing their own tour companies. The Black Scroll Scroll Tours is a perfect example, um, presenting at um, the local Michigan History um, conferences and publishing in Michigan History Magazine and, and um, going to genealogical societies. This is not something that is new with my work, but I think what I had the opportunity to do was to um, meet some of these people and talk with them at events in Detroit and to um, kind of pull together the resources of a university like the University of Michigan and to visit the libraries like the Clements, like the Bentley, to have students working with me to actually have the time to pull together a reconstructed narrative in this fashion. And then of course the writing itself,
0: Mm -hmm. that takes time too. A lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a short break and then we'll be back today on the program. Taya Miles is here, her book with the new press, The Dawn of Detroit, A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back.
2: Going down the dirty inner city side of the road, I plotted Madness passed me by, she smiled high, I nodded, looked up past the sky, began to cry. She shot it Met a girl from Devon early six o'clock this morning, cold facts buy the you Suburbia's such a drag Won't go back Cause Papa don't allow No new ideas here And now he sees the news But the picture's not too clear Mama, Papa, stop Treasure what you got Soon you may be caught Without it The curve you set for rain, will it ever all be straight? I doubt it.
0: Welcome back if you're just joining us. Just in time today on the program, Taya Miles is here. The Dawn of Detroit: A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits, out with the New Press. Um, if you are just joining us um, later in the week, you can check out the Living Writers website to hear the entire show. Uh, so Google Living Writers, and and you'll find our our website and be able to listen to the entire show um, today with Taya Miles and and our our some of our other archived shows as well. Um, so the Dawn of Detroit was published last year, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I've, I saw the C-SPAN book launch at Sourcebooks mm-hmm. and I'm sure a lot of people did <laughs> and it was an amazing event. Um, but, but you've also been out and you've been on NPR, you've been like the book's been reviewed everywhere, you know? Um, so you're getting a lot of feedback. Like you've worked on this book for these many mm-hmm. years, um, and you're in the stories, and and then the book comes out into the world as its own artifact um, now, a new record. Um, so what has it been like now? What sort of response
3: have has the book been receiving? The book has, has been receiving um, a kind of response that I actually couldn't have imagined for it. I'm really grateful that people are reading it and responding to it in um in mostly very open-minded ways you know um open-armed ways i have gotten so many emails and if you're someone who's emailed me and i haven't written back yet i will i'm doing my best (laughs) i try to take a few emails to respond to every day but i've gotten so many emails and even letters from people um in response to the book and these are from people who live in detroit and southeast michigan now some of them have um moved away but were born in the area and also people who have never even been here but um have heard about the city in certain kinds of ways in the media and are glad to have a different kind of perspective and so there's been a range that i find very fascinating if i would if i could try to um you know, group the reactions. I mean, I would say that for students, um, with whom I've actually worked on this and, um, talked about it in class. There has been a reaction of, um, a front, not about the material, but at the fact that they never knew it before, yes. because a lot of the students that we have are um, from the state. And, um, I've had several students from, from, um, the city of Detroit and from the, uh, nearby suburbs. And when they learned this, they are just shocked and, and, you know, offended, angry that, um, no one told them this, that they were living in a place that had, um, not only a rich history that they weren't necessarily aware of, but also, um, a history of exploitation that was never exposed. So the students have, have actually, um, embrace this and, um, have, have contributed in many ways to the research, including, um, helping with a website, uh, which is all about mapping slavery in Detroit that people could, could visit. Um, I've also heard from, um, uh, older African-Americans, you know, you know, adults, um, not the students are not adults, you're adults, <laughs> um, people my age and older, <laughs> uh, in the city who, who say that, um, they're actually kind of really glad and proud that African-American history in Detroit is being paid attention to that black people as readers are being paid attention to. I mean, one thing that was shocking to me um, was hearing that C-SPAN hadn't come to a Detroit bookstore before. I hope that's not really the case. I hope that um, that people are mistaken, but more than one person has said that to me. And so uh, even just, the image, the exposure of black readers in the city is something that's making people proud because that C-SPAN audience, um, it was a mixed race audience, but it was um, a largely African-American audience. And um, and there's, there's just a sense of wanting to defend the dignity of this city and feeling that this book is helping to do that. And um, I also, really much to my surprise, have now heard from... I think around seven people who know that they are descended from Detroit slaveholders or who fear that they might be. And, um, the conversations that we have had have kind of run the gamut between, um, some of these individuals being uh, very angry but not like the students. They, they're not angry that they never uh, learned about this. They're angry at me for um, having brought it forward. That's, that's one side of the spectrum. To um, people who can accept this, feel responsible for it, and want to do something to make a difference uh, when it comes to social inequalities because they recognize that part of their privilege now comes from their ancestors' actions.
0: And so are you actually, Then it sounds like you're in conversation with a couple of these.
3: I have been in, I've been in, in, in person conversations. I have been in email conversations. I have done additional research for, for some people uh, who, and that's probably why it takes so long to answer the emails. Um, but who, who want to know about their ancestors. And I've gone back to the records and looked for their ancestors and sometimes had to give them news. They didn't want to believe. I've had people who have said, um, this can't be true about my ancestor. And, I've, you know, I've had to say, well, actually it is. And you can look at the census records yourself. Right. And you it- can see your ancestor's name and how many people they owned. And whether they actually consciously get it or not, the fact that they
0: reached out to you to mm-hmm. ask shows that part of themselves is like they understand
3: that that is the case or that it's well it it shows that it's meaningful to them on some level they they want to know they they want to understand um where they come from in a sense who they come from Mm -hmm. and what their role might be in the present in relation to that past and so this this book the dawn of detroit so these are people who are writing to
0: you personally Mm -hmm. but i think it's also would be fair to say that the Dawn of Detroit is also um, a book that's a, not only about Detroit. I mean, it's mm-hmm. obviously about the history <laughs> and mm-hmm. like starting back in like, is it the fifteen hundred, the 1600s? Very way back. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's what it's talking about is the that the north wasn't what everyone thinks it is. Like we thought right. Detroit was the, the gateway to
3: freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and it was. And places... And people, and societies, are more than um, one thing. Right. So you actually just brought us back to the Northwest Territory, yay <laughs> T, <A-T. laughs> because, um, because, you're right. This story is not just about Detroit. There's plenty to say about Detroit, much more than I, you know, know or could say in this book. Um, it's also about Michigan, about Michigan Territory, about Michigan Statehood. It's about the Midwest. And um, the region that um, used to be known as the, that we used to be in the West, you <laughs> we, all, we were the West, we were the West, you know, when it came to um, <laughs> to the perspective of um, early Euro-Americans, Native people had a different view and a very different kind of map, but um, the Northwest Territory maps roughly onto several of the Midwestern states around Michigan. So Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, part of Minnesota, you know, Wisconsin. And um, these are places that we think of as not only having nothing to do with slavery, but being opposed to slavery. But I was raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was um, cognizant of the Ohio River as being a line between slavery and freedom. And I developed an identity, a regional identity, that was informed by that idea. When I moved to Michigan to start teaching here, I carried that identity with me. It it works in, works in Michigan, too, right? It's, it's all Northwest Territory. It's all north of the Ohio River. And, in fact, Michigan could be viewed as being even better because we're closer to Canada, which was even freer, supposedly, right? According to many of supposedly. our... That's right. According to many of our... Um, um, mythological maps about where people could go to get free. Um, But slavery actually was not so bounded. It wasn't. It was a system. It was um, a set of ideas that actually stretched across the country and could be applied anywhere. And it was applied here in Michigan because um, there were profits to be made. There was a fort, there were beaver, there mm-hmm. was a fashion industry. That's right. Um, and there, there was were, a city to build. That's right. And there were people who were vulnerable, native people in the Great Lakes region, native people from um, further west who were um, captured, traded into slavery, um, African-descended people being brought down from New France, being brought up from a place like Kentucky. There were people who were vulnerable who could enable... Uh, those who owned and traded them to um, to become rich, filthy rich, off of their exploited
0: labor. And now we've got some street names that to remind us about some of, which is another conversation mm-hmm. for another time. So mm-hmm. maybe we'll have a part two one future day. Taya, <laughs> that up. would be nice. That, I would love it. Um, thanks so much for being here today, uh, talking with us. Um, Thank you, T. Today on the program, Taya Miles, her book, The Dawn of Detroit, A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
1: WCBN-FM Ann Arbor Archives. Original air date October 21, 2006 at 12 p.m. noon.
2: Mournful. Big thanks to Tex for a great, great bluegrass show. I love that new Lori Lewis album. Let's see. We're just about to start the next show here. I want to give a big shout out to Pix, who's back at the old neighborhood hardware store right down there at the crossroads of Student Town. Welcome back. You're listening to WCBN FM. Ann Arbor. And you've got the Down Home Show on your radio. I'm your host, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Let's have some fun.
1: Oh, give me a horse, a great big horse, and give me a buckaroo, and let me wahoo, wahoo.